Space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. Welcome to Wild Weasel number eight. Or, if you've listened before, then welcome back. Boy, it sure has been a while. I was hoping to get an episode out around Christmas, but as usual, life interfered. I'm coming to you now from Portland, Oregon, having just moved a week ago after switching jobs. Leaving North Carolina was an adventure, with a freak snowstorm hitting us as the movers were loading our stuff onto the truck. And then we arrived to Snowmageddon 2017 in Portland. But we're here. Uh, The movers have dropped off our stuff. Nothing seems broken. And I'm enjoying my new job. And, of course, I'm ready for some board gaming and PDX. Uh, If you happen to live in the area, I'd love to hear from you. I live just down the street, sort of, uh, from Guardian Games and can also get to Cloudcap Games easily. And I also plan to hit the Lucky Lab game night uh, as well. Uh, I've got a game of Conquest of Paradise at Cloudcap set up for tomorrow evening, in fact, and a game of Enemy Action Ardennes for the, ga- uh, for the day after. So, if you want to play some war games, go ahead and use the comments page on Wargamespace, and we can try and arrange something. Um, I'd love to try to get a game of Virgin Queen in. Now, one of my favorite websites is quarter3.com, run by my friend and colleague Tom Chick, uh, who was my guest on Wild Weasel number 2. Now, the forums on that site are a lively place and are currently the home of a set of bruising Twilight Struggle tournaments where I've already taken my lumps. But the reason I'm mentioning it now is that someone started a thread about the best board games of the past five years, which made me think a lot because I wasn't actually sure what qualified, uh, you know, what came out then. So I sat down and made my list. Now, I was disappointed to find out that two fantastic games, uh, Sekigahara and Strike of the Eagle, came out in 2011 and were thus ineligible. But I did come up with five outstanding games that I encourage anyone who has an interest in wargaming to get out and play. But first, the news. Uh, It's been so long since the last episode that I'm not going to try to catch you up on everything that's happened. But even so, this will be a long news section. So, first, over at Legion War Games, both Target for Today and Demiansk Shield are entering production. Uh, So if you want to get the pre-order price, you better do it now. Uh, Target for Today is the B-17 Queen of the Skies update by Steve Dixon and Bob Best. But it doesn't actually require you to own B-17 Queen of the Skies. It just says some familiarity is assumed. I don't know. I hope they they wrote the rules for people who have never played the game. 
But uh, anyway, the game actually adds the B-24 Liberator as well. Um, now, Demyansk Shield is a game about uh, an under-simulated part of the Barbarossa campaign around the Valdai Hills. Um, so the way Legion War Games works, you don't actually have to give them any credit card information. You just go to their website, you place an order by giving them your email address, and when it's time to pay, they let you know. Uh, and if you've changed your mind, it's no problem. So I love the system. Uh, and they do have a new addition to it. It's called Invasion Malta from Vance Von Boris, who's the man who brought you those huge Eastern Front games like uh, Army Group South. So, uh, like all Malta or Crete games, this one has a mini-game included called Invasion Leros. Yeah, I don't know. And don't forget Kim Kanger's Burma Nemesis. Yeah, that's all at legionwargames.com. Now, Compass Games recently released 1866, colon, The Struggle for Supremacy in Germany, about the Austro-Prussian War, uh, by John B. Feirer, and... Finnish Civil War by Brian Train. Uh, they also have a game called Absolute Victory about the entire Second World War, uh, both theaters. Now, I usually shy away from games that try to cover two completely different theaters in one game, uh, but this one is designed by Arben Madison, who has some good designs to his credit, so I'll be interested to see how he solves the intractable problem of making a game with a land war and a sea war uh, fit together in one package. Now, about Finnish Civil War, um, I bought this specifically because of a very unorthodox map I saw posted on the big board where Kev expressed his displeasure at the art style. Now, when it arrived, I found that it had been replaced by a much more conventional wargame map, uh, which, while it looked good, lacked the funky sensibility of the old one. I really was looking forward to the reindeer. <laughs> now, I'm aware that wargames have a certain aesthetic, and the people who play wargames tend to be very conservative about this aesthetic, uh, not tolerant of much change, but I don't think we should discourage artists from taking new approaches to our hobby. Uh, I love the, camp the uh, map for campaigns of King David, for example, and would love a similarly unorthodox approach in other areas. Um, that said, I do think the replacement map in Finnish Civil War looks very nice. Uh, Compass also announced that Adam Starkweather is taking over as editor of Paper Wars from John D. Burt, and that Compass will be publishing several of Adam's game designs in 2017. Um, but it's the usual Western Front World War II stuff that I kind of skipped over. But if you're welcome, you know, if you're interested, you're welcome to go to uh, compassgames.com and you know find out more information. But I did see something called Korea Fire and Ice, which is the first in something called the Operational Scale System or OSS. So. Uh, now we have OCS and OSS, so keep those straight. Now, I'm ready to play any Korea game anytime, so I'll let you know more about this when I hear more. Oh, and um, by the way, I just want to say that uh, I know John D. Burt has had a long tenure in the hobby, and that without the responsibilities of Paper Wars, uh, I hope John has a lot more time to do more stuff that he wants to do, uh, whether that be wargaming or not. Um, coincidentally, the day I recorded this is the day GMT sent out a brand new update. Um, there's a lot going on with America's flagship wargame publisher, and I urge you just to go to gmtgames.com and click on the latest news, but let me do a quick roundup. So, right now, they're shipping the Churchill and Liberty or Death reprints, as well as Fields of Despair, which is a new block game uh, about the Great War by Kurt Keckley. Um, I'm not so much into block games, but I'm willing to change my mind about this one. Uh, there are also, they're also planning to release a digital version of Command and Color, sorry, Commands, we gotta remember that S, Commands and Colors, um, 
maybe commands ampersand colors, not as too much, uh, which is going to be developed by Hexwar, and it'll be in partnership with the Lord's Game Studio, who did uh, Panzer Core. Now, I think Hexwar is the primary developer on this, and unfortunately, I wasn't that impressed by their digital version of Academy Games 1775. Um, but maybe with the help of a larger studio, they can give Commands and Colors the digital treatment uh, that it deserves. I think the Commands and Colors Ancients is, uh, I think it's a great system. Uh, I have to say, Playdeck set an incredibly high bar with Twilight Struggles. So, um, yeah, they have the work cut out for them there. Um, two things that shouldn't get lost in their update are the fact that the remainder of the Twilight Struggle Collector's Editions are going to be going on sale. Uh, GMT says it'll be in mid-February. Now, GMT says they'll send out an email in advance of the sale so you can get ready. So watch your inboxes next month if you really want to get in on that. Um, also, uh, you might have noticed that the GMT yearly sale didn't happen this year. Uh, apparently, this sale generates such huge sales volumes that their current systems just can't handle it. Um, so I think that's a fantastic thing to say about a company selling war games, but it will delay the sale until GMT can get some software in place that's up to the task. So... I guess this year we'll have two yearly sales or something. Um, there are also some new additions to the P500 list, including a Mad Max version of Thunder Alley, uh-huh, and an interesting game about Mediterranean civilizations called Ancient Civilizations of the Inner Sea, and that's by Christopher Bruges and Mark McLaughlin. Uh, it doesn't sound like a war game, but it, doesn't sound, it does sound very interesting. And besides that, the P500 list is packed. Uh, looks very interesting this year. Although the two things that I'm most excited about uh, are coming out in the fourth quarter. And that's the two expansions for MBT, which are FRG and BAOR, meaning Federal Republic of Germany and British Army of the Rhine. So I want some leopards and challengers. Oh, yeah, and Pendragon, Imperial Struggle, and Next War Poland are fourth quarter releases as well. Uh, I wonder how many of those are going to slip, um, which shouldn't matter to me, actually, because I don't think I'll have time to play all of those in just three months. Oh, yeah, and Mark Herman's Pericles uh, looks like it's scheduled for March. Now, over at Kevin Zucker's headquarters at OSG, Napoleon's Quagmire still isn't out, um, but you can still get it at a discount. And, in fact, they have a winter sale where everything uh, appears, uh, most things, are 25% off. Um, they even have a discount on those cool counter sleds that you see in their videos. Uh, that's at napoleongames.com. Now, Worthington Publishing has a Kickstarter going for its Band of Brothers expansion pack called Epic Battles, and that has 12 days to run as of today, uh, January 24th. So you can also pledge to buy the base set uh or individual base games with the expansion if you want. So you can use this to get whatever part of the Band of Brothers series of games that you might desire. Um, I've actually heard good things about this system, but I've never played it, um, which might change because the epic battles included in Epic Battles are all on the Eastern Front. So you know what that does to me. Uh, I'm really curious about how the system plays, so uh, stay tuned on this one. Um, there's a link to the Kickstarter on the Wild Weasel episode number 8 page. Uh, another system I'm curious about is Old School Tactical from Mark H. Walker's Flying Pig Games. Now, after being out of stock for a while, the original set is supposed to be back in stock this month, and uh, they're also shipping Old School Tactical Volume 2, which is a Western Front kind of deal. Uh, you can find those at flyingpiggames.com. 
And speaking of things that are flying, how about high-flying dice games? That's Paul Rohrbaugh's company, and he has two new uh, designs of his own. They're both on obscure and therefore fascinating topics. Uh, one called Mud, Blood, and Steel, uh, about a battle in 1981 during the Iran-Iraq War. And another one called Jitra Jitters, about uh, combat in Malaya between the Japanese and the Allies in 1942. Uh, these are both Paul's designs, like I said, and they look like small games, which is in keeping with Paul's design aesthetic. Now, I don't think that there are enough good replayable small war games, so I'll probably at least try one of these, maybe the Iran-Iraq one. Uh, Victory Point Games, um, they've been all about their Twilight of the Gods game. Um, despite what it sounds like, it's not an Eastern Front heavy metal tank fest. Uh, so there aren't any new war games out from Alan Emmerich's company. Um, but they do have a fascinating non-war game called High Treason, The Trial of Louis Riel. Um, it's designed by attorney uh, Alex Berry about the trial of a Canadian revolutionary in the late 19th century. So there you have a, a game about an attorney, a game by an attorney about a trial. Um, this is the kind of historical game uh, I jump at, even if there are no guns. And while I haven't had the chance to play it, the rules are really interesting. Um, I'm hoping this is one of the few, uh, first new things I can play here in Portland. So that's at victorypointgames.com. Now, one small step games, uh, Tai Bomba is at it again uh, with more speculative history designs. And you can pre-order both um, America Falling, which is about an upcoming American Civil War. There are all sorts of factions, including some Islamists, I think. And Putin versus the Dragon, which pits a resurgent Red Army against Smog. Really. If you don't believe me, uh, go to ossgamescart.com. And uh, if that can't be confirmed, uh, I will confirm you can at least find a 50% off sale for Battle of Baghdad, which is down uh, from 80 bucks to 40 bucks. Um, I have no idea whether it's good or not and whether it's even worth 40 bucks, but um, that's on sale. Check it out. Now, Multiman Publishing, uh, they just had their Winter Offensive, uh, which is uh, their ASL um, tournament, and you can get their bonus pack of scenarios, uh, as well as a new board uh, from them. I have to say, I've been less excited about new ASL boards since they stopped being fully mounted. Um, you can also buy ASL Journal number 12. And don't forget all the crazy historical ASL stuff I talked about last time, uh, plus all the other things that they've got in their pipeline are very interesting. Um, not out yet, though. Uh, lastly, uh, there's this Hand in the Sea Kickstarter that happened in 2015, but nobody told me about, uh, which is a two-player card-driven war game. Uh, it's inspired by Martin Wallace's A Few Acres of Snow, um, but this game is about the first Punic War. Now, word on the street is that it's pretty darn good. Uh, unfortunately, the Kickstarter copies they have left are only available in the EU or Canada for some reason, and the full reprint, uh, which I assume will be available to U.S. buyers, won't be until fall 2017. So if you live in either our upstairs neighbor or one of our transatlantic neighbors, go to www.nightworksgames.com. That's night like K-N-I-G-H-T worksgames.com. Um, or better yet, follow the link on the Wild Weasel page since the URL I have there will take you uh, directly to the game. So I suggest you buy it, play it, and tell me how it is. And that's the news.
okay, you're still here and want to hear a top five list. So here you go. Number five. So Ted Racer's big mark on the hobby as a game designer was Paths of Glory, which made World War I exciting again. But uh, he's designed several World War II Eastern Front games, including the excellent uh, iOS and now Steam game Drive on Moscow for the unfortunately defunct Shenandoah studio. Uh, In 2013, GMT published his game The Dark Valley, which is sort of a, I guess I call it a quiet monster depicting the whole Eastern Front. Now, I've written a little bit about this game on Wargame Space and feel that the way the game combines the fragility of the Panzer Force with the ability of the Red Army to counterattack um, you know, allows it to duplicate some of the back and forth that David Glantz highlighted in his monumental uh, book, uh, Barbarossa Derailed. That's something you don't see in a lot of Eastern Front games, especially Barbarossa games. And I think it's a big step forward in an already crowded field, but it's also clearly superior to most of the crowd. And that's a 2013 release from GMT Games. Number four. Now, I'm a big fan of John Butterfield, but I'm not a big fan of the Battle of the Bulge. I mean, not anymore. I think I have about a dozen Bulge games in one form or another, and like D-Day games, I pretty much swore not to buy anymore. Then I broke my D-Day pledge by buying Butterfield's excellent solitaire game, D-Day at Omaha Beach, Um, but Bulge was an absolute no-no for me. So, imagine my surprise at buying Enemy Action Ardennes, and totally loving it. This is a solitaire game design at the highest level, um, not compromising any of the war game aspect, while really... I mean, devising a brilliant system, it really makes all the right moves if you let it. Uh, and that's the trick. Don't let it. Um, I actually haven't played it in its two-player version yet, uh, but hope to do so this week. Uh, no matter, this game stands on its solo uh, game alone. And you can play it solo either, either as the Germans or the Allies. Plus two-player, like I said. Uh, this is a must-buy, uh, published by Compass Games in 2015. Number three. Now, I am not an aficionado of the U.S. Civil War at all. Uh, it's way down there below many other historical subjects on my list of interests, uh, which makes it a little surprising that my number three game is Mark Simonich's U.S. Civil War. Uh, I talked a bit about the map and the rules and how well they work together in Wild Weasel number two. Um, I don't have much to add to that other than uh, this is the best American Civil War design I've seen in a very long time. It's published by GMT Games, and it came out in 2015. Number two, now, some people question whether or not this is a war game because, well, it says it isn't one right on the box, no, but whatever. Uh, Churchill, designed by Mark Harmon, is an incredible game on a theme I could never have imagined working until I actually played it. Uh, noted designer Harold Buchanan described it as, and I quote, a breakthrough design modeling a war we have modeled a thousand different times in a new way, end of quote. Harold, I could not agree with you more. Uh, If you haven't played this game yet, find two opponents and do it. It's now my all-time favorite three-player game, beating out Raw and Triumph and Tragedy. And no, Raw is not a war game. Uh, That's a 2015 release from GMT. Number one. Come on, was anyone really wondering about this? Um, I named King Conger's Dien Bien Phu The Final Gamble my number one war game of all time back in uh, Wild Weasel number one. And it came out in 2014, which makes it eligible for this list as well. And so, the best war game of all time happens to be the best war game of the past five years as well. And that's that. Go to legionwargames.com and order your copy.
Now, I really wanted to include a coin game, but even though they're all excellent designs, I just couldn't take any games off this list. Uh, another one I wanted to put on here was Navajo Wars, uh, and it might have made the list had I not played Enemy Action Ardennes recently. Um, really, there are a ton of games that came out in the past five years, and so many are so good. Uh, the hobby is really thriving. And um, I totally missed this hands-in-the-sea thing. Now, our interview today is with Philip Jelly. Uh, he's a prolific designer of print and play games. Uh, I got particularly interested in his game, um, well, his games, I should say, Mandate of Heaven, which is a Britannia-like rendering of Chinese history, and Empire of Rome, which is a solitaire game about Rome between uh, 27 BC and 284 AD that's currently being playtested for publication in uh, Against the Odds magazine. Now, we talked about Mandate of Heaven way back last spring, and this finally seemed like a good time to run the interview. Oh, almost a year later. Gosh, oof. Sorry for the delay, Philip. So this time on Wild Weasel, I have Philip Jelly, who's a game designer who's coming to us from England and who has some designs that uh, are desktop publishing designs that I found on BoardGameGeek. And I was particularly interested in a game called Mandate of Heaven that Philip designed. And it turns out um, this game is based on the system in Britannia, which is uh, an Avalon Hill game that I think is really underappreciated, um, but it was subsequently republished. Um, but then Philip took that system. Britannia, obviously, is a game about uh, Britain. But then Philip took the game to China. So, uh, Philip, welcome. Hello. Hello. Um, tell me, Philip, you know, what aspects of Chinese history uh, do you feel worked well with the Britannia system? Well, in the Britannia system, we have the Romans at the beginning of the game conquering Britain and forcing the tribes to submit. And this is a very regular thing in Chinese history. Um, a dynasty would take control of China, then they look around, and they would force the surrounding nations, Tibet, Mongolia, Manchuria, uh, to submit, you know, and um, they would invade them or form an alliance or really get the ones under control. And then if the dynasty would decline, it would kind of collapse and the barbarians would rise again and fight on. So each time a dynasty rises in China, you've got to figure out, well, are they coming from me and should I resist them or should I submit? Mm -hmm. Because um, if you submit, you live to fight another day. Right. Um, but um, you may think, well, resistance on this occasion towards the end of the game may be better to help me win. Right, and it's all about victory points. And um, you know, the thing with victory points in Britannia is there's this sort of there's this this as, as civilizations kind of wash back and forth, and and you kind of uh, you know take these guys out and then take those guys out. Um, is that the is that the way that Chinese? I don't know a lot about Chinese history. Is that's the is that the also the uh, sort of state of Chinese history throughout this period? Yes, well, roughly the game has 16 turns, like Britannia, and roughly every two or three turns, a new dynasty arrives in China, mm -hmm. and they basically pile up three arms in each area of China, or most of them, knock out the old dynasty, and then start expanding. On their second turn, they have what I call dynastic decline, which means they can't stack more than one army in any area, which kind of means they have to spread out to get as many points as possible, because they've got nothing to lose, but also makes them very weak, when the barbarians start you know, clawing at them from the edges, and when the new dynasty comes the next turn, then they wipe them out and move on. Um, so you get 
there's you know, got the Han, then the Sin, then the Song, the Su, the Tang, and the Ming, and so on, each taking over China, expanding. Uh, there were a couple of the nations from outside, the Mongols and the Manchus, who invaded and took over China themselves and made themselves Chinese emperors, and various other smaller uh, barbarian peoples did it as, as well. So there's lots of um, expansion, contraction, invasion from foreign areas and so on going on. And uh, over the course of 2,000 years, it's quite mobile. Mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, for for uh, listeners who don't know about the Britannia system, you know these all these all these dynasties are you know the, in, really in the control of one player because then there's another player that's basically like a lot of uh, um, colonial empires and there's a lot of there's another player that's in control of different sort of uh, Southeast Asian empires. Um, this is this is sort of the Chinese history, but very much involving you know foreign nations. Um, and the, their sort of competition for this for this very large landmass. Yes, it's China conquering the outside world and the outside world coming into China. And at the beginning, you have the Huns and so on. Towards the end, you have the British and the Japanese and the Americans coming in. And there's four colors. There's blue, green, yellow and red. And each one controls a couple of Chinese dynasties, a couple of the foreign empires, a couple of other Tripoli Empire, like the Turks and the Mongols, and so you, each player has a bit of everything. Sometimes they're very powerful, and sometimes not. Right, but depending on the turn, actually. Yes, well, I try to arrange it so that you either in charge of a, a major power or a kind of medium power um, all the time. You're not left and over about two pieces, and you know, nothing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so what was the most difficult thing? I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in this game. What was the most difficult thing to simulate in the game that you thought was uh, was absolutely important that you had to have? Well, there's the Great Wall of China, <laughs> which runs along the northern border of China and uh, was to keep out the barbarians and didn't really work because it never really stopped a serious invasion of mm -hmm. China. They would get through. I suppose it stopped little local raids and so on. So what I've decided is that um, if you cross the wall from outside China, you have to stop. You can't just you know, carry on into the heartland. Okay. And in the first round of combat, there's, um, the defenders get a little extra boost. They're harder to kill, as if they were sitting on a mountain or behind a river or some, some such. And then after that, it's normal. So it um, kind of blunts the invasion, but doesn't quite stop it. And you, you also have uh, you had to incorporate uh, a lot of you mentioned rivers into the game when we were uh, you know kind of corresponding about it. That uh, you mentioned that the um, the rivers also didn't do much, but they're important in Chinese history. So you felt you you know really needed to include those. Well, the three of the largest rivers in the world were on the map. There's the Yangtze and the Yellow and the Amur River, and. The Mongols were stopped on one of the rivers. They had the Chinese had a navy, and the Mongols didn't. Mm -hmm. and it stopped them for about ten years, which isn't very much in game terms. But by then, they simply took the fleets from the part of China they had conquered, and then they were able to move on into southern China and Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, so you had to have something there because obviously these are you know, rivers a mile wide. They've got to have some kind of effect on the game. And also with the Yangtze um, River, they have areas on our side which give you extra population growth um, they were very rich and very fertile mm -hmm. and you had mentioned also that uh, you know you that at one point you extended the map to include Singapore and Japan were you thinking of not having those on the map at some point uh, originally I had a square map which is basically 
China and the immediate areas around. And I moved into a more rectangular map, uh, 33 inches by 22 inches. And that gave me enough room to include Japan. And I thought, well, the Japanese had some pirates and they went over and attacked Korea and China. And uh, the Mongols tried to attack Japan. So I thought, well, that kind of works into the system. And I had Southeast Asia, but I hadn't extended it down, right down to Singapore. And I thought, well, I add that because I have the World War Two at the end of the game. So mm -hmm. you have the Japanese and the British fighting over Singapore as well. Right. Yeah. That the the game really is like this giant uh, piece of history, all uh, all on one map. It's very ambitious. I'm very impressed by that. Um, is there anything specific, do you think, to Chinese history that um, should make it attractive to gamers? I mean, there's, there aren't very many games on Chinese history. Um, what, what, can, what can it offer? Well, it gives you a kind of Chinese view of the world. I mean, in the center of this China, which is the cradle of all civilization. And then beyond that, there are the tributary nations who pay tribute to the great Chinese emperors. And then beyond that, you had barbarians. And that's pretty much the Chinese view of the world. And occasionally one of the more military emperors who go out and conquer the barbarians and bring them to the benefits of civilization. And of course, occasionally the barbarians returned the favor and um, came over the Great Wall and conquered China. Mm -hmm. uh, but an uh, interesting Genghis Khan, you know, the great Mongol conqueror. Yeah. And in Chinese history, he's used as being a Chinese rebel general because Mongolia was at some point is in the Chinese empire. So he was kind of Chinese, really, and not, not an invader, which they found it easier to, to accept. I see. So culturally, he's one of them. In, in yes, he said, well, you know, it's like saying that Ireland is really part of Britain, so it isn't you know, a problem. But um, it's <laughs> okay. not really a view the Mongols kind of um, subscribe to. Interesting. So um, tell me, you, you know, you, when did you, when did you uh, design the game? For, when did you first design the game? I think this is one of your older designs, isn't it? Uh, yes, in 2002, I designed it. 2002. Um, and you have some newer designs, and those are on, uh, those are on uh, Board Game Geek, and you have, you've made them, a lot of them available, you know, for uh, desktop publishing, because I just, I mean, the way I got the game was I, I was kind of exploring Board Game Geek, and I saw this Mandate of Heaven, and then, oh, here's the left side of the map, here's the right side of the map, here are the counters, you know, here are the rules and everything like that. Um, how many more games do you have available for people to check out? Uh, I have a few. I have a little bit of it was actually published by um, Against the Odds in their magazine. Oh, okay. Years. Um, let's see now. Then I have Empire of Rome, mm -hmm. which started to make, if you know, Republic of Rome by Avalon Hill. Yeah. This was kind of extending over the next few hundred years into the Empire. Okay. And um, it got to be a bit of a monster, so I trimmed it down a bit to a solitaire game. Okay. Uh, then there's um, Dublin, uh, Easter Week. If, if you're Irish, you may know it's. Uh, a hundred years ago, 1916, was the Easter Rebellion mm -hmm. against the British in yep. Dublin. And so I have a game with that. Wow. I'm so, going to dig out in a, next month. <laughs> right, of course. Um, yeah. So I'll, what I'll do is um, I'm, I'm just fascinated by uh, by Mandate to Heaven. I guess I'm going to have to check out some other things that you've done. So um, what I'll do is I'll uh, put listeners, you can, um, you can go to my Wild Weasel page, and there will be links to both uh, Mandate to Heaven specifically and to... Uh, Philip Jelly's uh, designer page where you can find links to a bunch of his other stuff. Philip, thank you very much for taking time to talk to me today. Okay, thank you very much.
as I said, I recorded that interview with Philip Chili last spring, around the time I first found Mandate of Heaven. Uh, I thought it was a tremendous idea to make a game on the subject of Chinese history, and I ended up printing a playtest copy and trying it out at our local game store with three friends. Uh, while we didn't get close to finishing, the play session got me thinking about how difficult the job of a game developer is, where you actually have to take a game designer's ideas, bring out the best in them, and tweak and hone and polish the rough edges until the game is as great as its best ideas are. Uh, that can involve anything from rules tweaks to map redesigns. And let's not forget the rules themselves and how they're worded and whether they're clear or not, or how many holes you have to patch, etc., etc. Really, being a developer is a difficult job. And in many ways, it's a thankless one. After all, if the game turns out to be great, well, designer gets all the credit. Now, the reason I thought about this again and decided to include my interview with Philip here is that I recently played two games that were both reprints. Uh, one was the second edition of a game published in 2010, reprinted by its original publisher. And the other was a reprint of a long out-of-print game from 1982, redone by a new publisher. And those two games drove home exactly how important development is. So Hearts and Minds, designed by John Paniski and published uh, by Worthington Games in 2010, is a card-driven, area-movement, strategic-level game about the entire war in Vietnam, played in yearly turns that are, well, really quarterly, since you play four rounds per year in each set of four rounds is a turn, technically, but whatever. Um, the original was hamstrung by two things, uh, a board that was much too small for the playing pieces and counter density, and some rules that, while they weren't incomplete, they were, I would say, somewhat disorganized. Um, no Trumpets, No Drums, which was designed by Mark McLaughlin and published as a magazine game in 1982 in The Wargamer number 22 uh, from Worldwide Wargames, um, is a strategic level hex encounter game played in bi-monthly turns or semi-monthly. No, one turn is two months. Anyway, whatever. Um, the original had two really big problems. Uh, a truly horrible map. I mean, it's on the list of one of the worst maps of all time, I think. And some unreadable counters. Now, really, the map was just atrocious. So I have the original No Trumpets, No Drums, but I'd never played the first Hearts and Minds. Um, I just happened to get in on the Kickstarter for the reprint a couple years ago, uh, for which I'm very happy. Uh, so when I got the new editions of both games, I was interested to see how differently they had gone about redoing these uh, you know, very different products. So the first problem that Hearts and Minds fixed was the map, which really was way too small for the game on the first printing. So they just doubled the size. <laughs> Uh, they also added charts and tables to the map itself with one set facing each player. Turned out almost perfectly, I think. Uh, there are a couple other things that make the game better, but to get those, you need to go to Stan Helinski's website. Uh, Stan Helinski is the developer of Hearts and Minds. Shortly after the original game came out, he posted a revised set of rules with no actual changes to them, as far as I know, but written in a much clearer and more readable way. Uh, Stan also made some player aid cards, as well as a reinforcement track, all of which you can print out. Uh, they're hosted at his website, and you can find a link to it uh, on the podcast uh, episode webpage. Um, but I really, what I really noticed about the way the rules are written is how easy they are to understand now, and how questions you might have about a rule are immediately answered in the next sentence. It's like someone has explained the game to you, and you say, yeah, but what if, and the what if and three others like it are covered in the next paragraph. And that got included in the reprint as well. Um then there's no trumpets, no drums. As I said, the two glaring problems with this game were the awful map. Um, like I said, it could be in the top two or three 
uh, worst maps of all time in war games. And the counters, which in some cases could really be unreadable, uh, especially like the Marines, you couldn't tell whether they had the little anchor, just terrible. Also, purple NVA, oh my god. Okay, so there was some work to do there. And One Small Step Games did a great job with the map. Uh, the new one is by Bruce Yerian, uh, who has done a lot of uh, map work for high-flying dice games. And it is superb. It's like going from a grade school book report to the New York Review of Books. Uh, and the counters look great, too. The nice silhouettes with a strong modern style that completely outclasses the crude 1982 icons. And with perfect readability, which is something you couldn't say uh, about the numbers on the old counters. However, the backs of the counters are another story. Now, the original counters were single-sided, meaning that they were all blank uh, on the back. And that's not surprising for a game published in a magazine in 1982, but it also has a significant game design effect, which is that all face-down counters appear the same. Uh, in a game where you're sneaking guerrilla units into foreign countries along with supplies for a war effort, this is a big deal. Uh, and there are multiple insurgencies happening at this time, not only in Vietnam, but in Laos and Cambodia as well, uh, and they're, they're covered in the game. And I doubt they're necessarily wearing standard uniforms. So in the original game, all the counters had a black blank reverse side, like I said, which was probably both for cost and gameplay reasons. But the design intent was clearly to have the flipped units be anonymous. But what happens when you upgrade the counters and give everything a nice back? Well, if the backs are different, you can now tell whether something is Pathet Lao, Khmer Rouge, VC, or NVA. Uh, even worse, the supply units now have NVA backs, which immediately reveal them as supply units when you place them in neutral countries or in South Vietnam. Um, is it supposed to be this way? I can't imagine that it is, and if so, it's a huge change for the worse in terms of the design. But I suspect that this is an unintended effect uh, for other reasons. Um, because there are several things about this game which made me feel like nobody really playtested this game very much. Or if they did, either nobody noticed or took the feedback into account. So for one thing, the points track on the map lacks a zero box, um, despite the fact that the points start set up with a marker needing to be in that box. I mean, didn't someone say, huh, there's no zero box here, guys? I mean, it's not like they didn't have room. Uh, and there are a bunch of new rules for new units that don't completely fit with the old units and rules. And there are some references to things like um, VC divisions, which ended up not being in the game, um, but they're still in the rule book. I don't know. From my perspective, um, I always want a tighter game that has been playtested to death uh, rather than a game with a lot of chrome uh, that may or may not work, because usually it doesn't. Um, so uh, the reason I'm talking about this here is that when we played Mandate of Heaven last spring, I saw a game with clear rules, but with mechanics that rewarded control of very specific areas, uh, which could be hard to make out on the map, uh, as they were collections of areas with historical significance, but they weren't clearly delineated as such. Uh, furthermore, the gameplay developed very slowly, so that while the game did a great job of showing the influence of many different cultures on Chinese development, there were points you know, where some players just didn't have much interesting things to do. Um, yet the things that they were doing were critical. Um, and it struck me as one of those games that would keep players searching out its charms over multiple playings as long as the playings themselves could be made smoother and a little faster, or at least better paced. Um, now, this in turn required some big changes to the map art, maybe to the rules and, and maybe the reinforcement schedules, but that's a big development task. And um, I now see that Philip's uh, Board Game Geek page has Mandate of Heaven listed as having been submitted to Against the Odds magazine for a campaign study special issue. Now, I just hope this gets all the development and playtest work it needs because 
I think it could end up being a really great game on a very neglected topic. Um, but I'll be really disappointed if the people who publish it don't think about things like what needs to go on the backs of the counters or whether the points track makes any sense. And that's it for this time. In the next episode, maybe you'll hear about my adventures in Portland Wargaming. And please, let me know your top five games of the past five years. If you can, post in the quarter to three, and there'll be a link uh, on the webpage, uh, the episode webpage on uh, Wargame Space. Or you can do it in the Wild Weasel comment section. I'd love to hear what you guys think is the new hotness recently. Uh, until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for more Wargaming news, people, and views. This has been Wild Weasel, number